Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets, up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. And here we are again, Ben. And uh, the world is very scary. Yes, it, it feels very unsettled, Tommy. feels very unsettled, which is why we're doing the third Pod Save the World of the week. Uh, again, exclusively focused on the situation in Israel and Gaza. We are going to talk about the latest on the humanitarian situation in Gaza and reports that Israel may soon launch a ground invasion. The U.S. response the genuinely crazy uh, Republican response that we're seeing to all this, the pro-Palestine protests that are happening around the globe, uh, the latest on how uh, the intelligence community thinks the Hamas attack went down and was not uh, caught in advance in the political reaction in Israel. And then we're going to take some great questions about Hezbollah, about Iran, about a bunch of stuff from the Pod Save the World Discord community. Uh, thank you guys again for submitting those. And if you want to join that conversation or send any questions or anything, go to crooked.com slash friends. Um, all right, Ben, you want to turn to Gaza first? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it has been nearly a week since Hamas launched this terrorist attack on southern Israel that killed over 1,300 Israelis, the vast majority of whom were civilians, including women and children. We're recording this at about 2 p.m. Pacific time on Friday, October 13th, and it seems like Israel is on the cusp of beginning a ground invasion into Gaza. There has been this major uh, Israeli military buildup near the border with Gaza. There have been over 6,000 Israeli airstrikes since last Saturday. The Palestinian Health Ministry says uh, about 1,800 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed since the war started, and thousands more have been injured. On Friday, the Israeli military, we'll call them the IDF for short going forward, told people in northern Gaza, about 1.1 million people, to evacuate to the south. The United Nations says that is impossible, that it will create a humanitarian disaster. Some Gazans have started evacuating. Others have refused. Hamas says the evacuation order is fake propaganda. They've urged people to ignore it. Uh, Human Rights Watch called out Israel for reportedly using white phosphorus munitions in Gaza and in Lebanon. White phosphorus is an incendiary weapon that can leave people with horrific burns and also obviously starts fires in civilian areas. There's reports that Israel has conducted limited cross-border raids into Gaza to take up militants to look for hostages. There are growing calls for Israel to open a humanitarian corridor in Gaza so civilians can get access to food and water and fuel. Ben, historically speaking, uh, Israel has really prioritized getting back hostages. This time around, I'm seeing really scary background quotes from government officials saying things like, you know, the defeating Hamas has to take priority uh, over hostage rescue. Uh, Netanyahu said every Hamas member is, quote, a dead man. Benny Gantz said it's time for war and that the government was ready to wipe this thing called Hamas off the face of the earth. So, you know, I think as we've discussed, like totally understandable emotion here. 
Um, but I think the question still remains, how? What is the end game? Is this a plan for revenge? Or, you know, is there something hopefully behind the scenes? Obviously, they wouldn't tell us in advance. But what is the plan for getting the hostages released, defeating Hamas, and limiting civilian casualties? That we still don't know. Well, I think the point is that those three objectives are, are in tension with each other, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, t- it, it bears repeating that we have to recognize that Israel is in a profoundly kind of traumatized state. Um, their casualty count continues to go up. The reports of Hamas atrocities uh, continue to dominate uh, Israeli society and, 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 and here as well, um, understandably. And that, that has led to both the desire for, for revenge and, and for security for Israel. Um, but to those questions of, of hostages, of how to deal with Hamas, of how to limit civilian casualties, those are all the trade-offs that they're going to be making as they make a decision about what this ground invasion is. It seems like there's certainly going to be a ground invasion. The, the tanks are at the border. The reserves have been mobilized. All of the messaging suggests that they're about to go into Gaza. Um, if... And I should add, they are. This has been different than previous Gaza wars already. Like the, the pace of airstrikes, we're talking six thousand airstrikes in just Massive. a few days. Um, that is a pace and, and scale of airstrikes that is much bigger than even uh, the previous four Gaza wars. You know, if they go in uh, overwhelmingly to try to to destroy Hamas, as they said, um, it, with it, with that as the objective. You know, your capacity to, I don't know, frankly, how you deal with the hostage situation because essentially Hamas is more likely than not has those hostages in civilian areas, in areas spread out everywhere. that are spread out. And, and, and unless we have very good intelligence on exactly where they are, um, it would seem like the hostages themselves might be at risk from an overwhelming bombardment and ground invasion. Now, I, you know, obviously, I'm sure every intelligence resource is being spent on trying to find places where the hostages are, and there could be some special forces uh, maneuver there. But, um, you know, the, and then the civilian casualty front, again, a massive ground invasion uh, with the kind of bombardment that we've seen is going to be, you know, pretty catastrophic in terms of civilian casualties. And there's both, I think, the question that was raised by the the UN uh, announcement around the 1 million uh, Palestinians that they were calling to, to move. Um, it calls into question whether there could also be mass displacement of Palestinians, yep. um, which in the Palestinian historical memory, of course, it, you know, that is their most traumatic event because uh, essentially the Palestinian refugees who were displaced, you know, around Israel's founding and in other times have, have not been able to return. Yeah, you're hearing and, people call this the second Nakba, which is why they say they won't leave their homes. That's exactly right. And so if you have a million people pushed into Egypt, I think their their assumption is I'll never be able to go home um, and I'll just become, you know, I'll become like the Palestinians who've been stuck in Lebanon or in Jordan. And, and so this is an incredibly challenging time and and the scale of what Israel chooses to do is going to determine a lot of things. I mean that th- this is the moment to think hard about what the objectives are, how heavy you want to go in and and whether you want to do things that put at risk the hostages, whether you want to actually displace uh, you know potentially a million or more uh, Gazans or whether there can be something that is a more limited t- type of military operation. Um, it feels like, the momentum in Israel is towards the more maximalist objectives. 
Yeah, um, definitely and that, does. And that's, you know, we, we are raising skepticism both out of concern for Palestinians, but also out of concern for Israelis and the strategic consequences of that. Yeah, I mean, part of this is about the, the efficacy of any sort of military operation, the risk to the IDF soldiers who will go in. Yeah. You could see hundreds, if not thousands, killed if we're talking about sustained urban combat for a long time. Um, you know, there's also, frankly, some scary kind of dehumanizing language being yeah. used by Israeli officials. Uh, Israeli president, Bugi uh, Herzog, said... It is not true, this rhetoric about civilians, we're not aware, we're not involved, it is absolutely not true. They could have risen up against that evil regime that took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. He goes on you know, to say more in that quote, I don't have the full one in front of me, but you know, that's disconcerting. Um, there uh, have been some sporadic clashes in the West Bank already between Palestinians there and security forces. There's uh, 70 people were killed uh, after an Israeli airstrike hit three convoys of evacuees trying to leave northern Gaza. So even that, you know, sort of plan, uh, the the ordered evacuation the Israelis announced is not safe for people. There's also, I just saw coming in here, Ben, a horrifying video uh, circulating on social media of the moment an Israeli shell landed on a bunch of international journalists covering these sporadic clashes in southern Lebanon, killing a Reuters photographer, wounding six others. So this is spilling out and, and harming a lot of innocent people very quickly. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the, um, the rhetoric, uh, <laughs> the, the, there's two pieces to the rhetoric that I think are, are worth watching here. The first is the kind of bougie Herzog point that the people of Gaza are somehow responsible um, for not rising up. Y- you know, that, that kind of recategorizes essentially the people of Gaza in, in, in more of a combatant place than in uh, treating them as civilians. Um, and that, obviously could lead to more indiscriminate use of, of violence in Gaza. And then also you see this, you know, refrain, this is not not human, they're barbarians, they're, you know, they're, it, 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 it entirely applies to the behavior of Hamas. <laughs> like yeah. like, like it, it, the Hamas's behavior, what they did, that pogrom, that massacre, that war crime, that mass atrocity they committed, all of that language you know, can, I think, uh, describe that behavior. The problem is when it bleeds into describing kind of the people of Gaza. Right. Um, and and I, I just hope that there's a, 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 an effort to kind of separate these two out. Even the point about ISIS, what they did was absolutely reminiscent of ISIS. The military wing of Hamas is absolutely behaving as ISIS. But Gaza is not the caliphate, exactly. you know, like that's the distinction where it's, a, it's a seemingly subtle, but like it basically gets at, are the two million people there guilty or is Hamas something that needs separated out from them? And, yeah. You know, that's not easily done militarily, but I do think there are other alternative military strategies that simultaneously try to relentlessly target Hamas and that might try to mobilize resources, maybe from the Arab world, uh, to, to try to, change the game in Gaza to try to get rid of Hamas and build something different, you know? Um, so there are other ways that I think are worth at least considering going about doing yeah, this. Yeah, which is why you shouldn't rush. Uh, but in fairness to Herzog, he was sort of asked uh, later if this meant that Gazans were legitimate military targets. He emphatically rejected that. He's sort of pointing out the fact that because Hamas uses civilians and civilian infrastructure to strike Israel, they have no choice but to operate in those areas. That is fair. That is true. But the other part of that quote is very sort of ominous sounding. Um, we reached out to a journalist 
journalist in Gaza named Noor Hazin. Um, she sent us this message describing what life is like in Gaza now and, and this, you know, ordered evacuation of over a million people from northern uh, to southern Gaza. This clip is a little longer than the clips we normally played in, but we thought it was incredibly powerful and important uh, for you guys to hear it. So here it is. There is no airplanes, trains. There is only cars. And there is only two streets, basically, that are linking um, Gaza City with southern Gaza. So most of the people who are lucky enough, they would take cars. Um, and this is so rare nowadays because there is basically no fuel to cars. And others are using, are, are walking basically on their foot. I mean, I saw today hundreds of people taking that route on their feet. There is hundreds of thousands of people that decided to stay in their homes in central Gaza and northern Gaza. Um, some of them uh, decided to go to shelters. And when we say shelters, uh, we mean UN schools or hospitals because there is no uh, shelters basically in Gaza. But people think that um, schools that belongs to the UN and um, hospitals are the safest place for them to be in. Uh, the infrastructure here in Gaza is totally damaged. We are facing problems with the electricity. The, um, the internet, we barely get uh, Wi-Fi when we are in the hospitals. Um, uh, the Wi-Fi lines in Gaza are all down. We cannot even communicate with each other. The lines are also down. Um, it's really bad and, and this makes things even worse during evacuation because basically families cannot call each other and know what they're planning to do. My children are okay. They are now um, sleeping actually. They were really tired. Uh, because they've gone through a very, very rough night of ongoing Israeli airstrikes. Um, most, actually, of these airstrikes targeted a place that is just 300 meters away from where my children were residing. I've been working as a reporter for like 12 years now, and I, I've seen injured children, I've seen dead children, I, I, I've seen bodies that have been under the rubble for five and four days, I, I've seen a lot. And this is what we're going through now is even worse. Uh, I cried a lot today. I keep it all together because this is the only thing that I should do. I mean, if I collapsed, if I collapse, if I, if I am not as strong as I should be in front of my children, and in front of my family and in front of my parents, they will lose faith because they put all of their faith in me. I take it as, as a responsibility of, of telling the world what is really happening here on the ground in Gaza. So I, I have no other choice. So Ben, Noor and her two children are among those evacuating. But we also reached out to Mahmoud Shalabi. He's the acting Gaza director for medical aid for Palestine. He has chosen not to leave his home. Here's a clip. There are people who started fleeing their homes, it's true, but there are also people who are refusing to do so and refusing to um, be part of a second Nakba. Uh, what, and I am one of those. I am not leaving my home. I am not going 
to be a refugee again. I am already a Palestinian refugee. This is not going to be repeated for me or anyone from my family. I understand the safety concerns. I understand how it's going to affect many people, but I will not leave. I will die standing. My existence in itself on this land is resistance. And I am urging all the people of the free world to share this message with the people who care about humanity, about dignity, and about human life. We will not go down tonight. So Ben, it speaks to the impossible choices that people are facing in Gaza. And, you know, sort of what you mentioned earlier about people not wanting to become a refugee a second time. But obviously also hospitals and, and people in them can't move. They can't evacuate. Yeah. I, I mean, to put this in perspective, Gaza's population uh, is bigger than the population of Manhattan, right? I mean, a lot of people have been to New York, like to Manhattan. I mean, it, it, you, I just try to imagine, try to move all those people in a place where over 80% of the people are in extreme poverty already. There's not much infrastructure to speak of, and there have been 6,000 bombs dropped. And they're uh, running out of gas. And they're running, and, and the f- fuel's been cut off, food, water supplies have been cut off. So th- this is not a place where you can have an orderly, you know, move, movement of a million people, you know, out of some harm's way. And, and even if you did, by the way, um, Hamas is going to move with those people, you know. Um, and so it, it's, I, I don't know that if there's a full-scale effort in terms of a ground invasion and occupation of Gaza, um, ultimately anywhere in Gaza is not going to be safe. Uh, I, I think what I hope people can take away from those clips, these are not Hamas people, right? No. These are people, you know, we all were gutted, absolutely gutted by what happened to the Israeli people and the innocent people whose lives were lost and the stories they told. Um, Israel, of course, like any government, will want to defend its population, will want to attack a group like Hamas that carried out an atrocity like that. But but we just have to bear in mind that these people are in the middle of this. Um, these innocent people are in the middle of this. And again, that we should be concerned about that, but also flattening the whole city of Gaza will transform that region um, forever. You know, it could lead to escalate escalatory violence, wars, Hezbollah coming in, regional conflicts, inflame Arab opinion, uh, Israel isolated for a very long time. So this is the time to be careful about how, how heavily Israel goes in. Yeah, very well said. Um, let's turn to uh, the response from Washington, um, specifically President Biden. So President Biden has gotten a lot of praise from the Jewish community in the U.S. and from Israelis for his response to the tragedy, in particular remarks he made to Jewish community leaders where President Biden talked about how he has taken all of his kids and grandkids to Dachau uh, when they turned 14. For those who don't know, Dachau was a horrific Nazi concentration camp. I, had you ever heard him tell that story? I, I, I had no idea. And I, you know, Joe Biden usually shares everything. Stories you know, a like, few times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, I was so, uh, I, and I was, yeah, I was surprised I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, uh, whose grandparents were, is he the son or grandparent of Holocaust survivors? Yeah, a grandparent and step stepfather. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, deep connection to the Holocaust, uh, a Jew himself. Uh went to Israel. He met with Netanyahu. He was reportedly shown images of some of the worst atrocities, including against children and infants. Uh, Tony visited a relief center, uh, incredibly moving moment there where he met a survivor who was at the music festival that was attacked. Uh, he also delivered some remarks standing beside uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Here's a clip from Tony. I come before you not only as the United States Secretary of State, but also as a Jew. My grandfather, 
Maurice Blinken, fled pogroms in Russia. My stepfather, Samuel Pizar, survived concentration camps, Auschwitz, Dachau, Majdanek. So, Prime Minister, I understand on a personal level the harrowing echoes that Hamas's massacres carry for Israeli Jews, indeed, for Jews everywhere. Tony also talked about how much this all impacted him as a parent. Um, as we sort of anticipated on Tuesday, Ben, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin also went to Israel. We we're just texting with our friend Kelly, who was on the trip, so it was incredibly powerful. Uh, the Pentagon is surging military assistance to Israel, which I have read is more about contingency planning in the event that Hezbollah or someone else gets involved than really this fight in Gaza. Um, President Biden held a call with families of Americans taken hostage or, or otherwise unaccounted for. The U.S. is trying to cut a deal with Egypt for safe passage of Americans out of Gaza. I think there's like 500 Americans in Gaza that we know about. Um, you know, and then, Ben, more broadly, I mean, in the U.S., there is this very eerie sort of pervasive fear right now, especially in the Jewish community that feels a lot like those days post 9-11. Um, that is, I, I don't know, I think just really impacting people. Um, you're also seeing, you know, some progressives start to call for uh, Biden to do more to urge caution, to call for de-escalation, call for a ceasefire. Potentially some of the House have called for a ceasefire. Uh, the Biden administration, though, is still pointedly not saying any of that publicly. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. Like we, you and I have been talking about this offline, obviously. The, 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 uh, what Tony is speaking to, right? And he personally has this experience in his family and he's usually a pretty private guy. And that's about as revelatory as, you know, you'll hear Tony be in public. And I think that speaks to both how important that history is to him and his family. I, th yeah, I think Tony is in public service because of that history, you yeah, know, like yeah. it, there's kind of pay it forward uh, mentality. Um, but also kind of speaking to the kind of trauma that is reawakened in people. And look, I'm not I'm stepping out of my depth here a little bit, but I mean, there is a deep rooted trauma inside Jewish people and my, my mother's Jewish and I come from a European you know, Jewish family that has pogroms in, in, in it and the people that didn't come to the United States, you know, obviously, uh, or, or, or leave to other countries, um, obviously, were in the Holocaust. Um, and, and so I, I do think that part of what is happening here is, you know, this, this kind of sense of trauma and vulnerability is being awakened in the Jewish people, um, which is completely understandable given the scale of the atrocities we've seen. Um, I think at the same time, you know, I remember 9-11. I, I, I saw 9-11. I was in New York. And that transformed my life. Like, I'd, I'd, I went in national security. I mean, infamously, I was a creative writing graduate student at the time. I was a band uh, driver. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, But witnessing that, I was like, I want to be a part of, you know, the response to it. And I remember um, being in New York and there were some lefties. I was at NYU, right? So there were some lefties mm -hmm. back in the day who were saying everybody's got to chill out and think twice before we start bombing Afghanistan. And I, I'll be honest, like as a angry 23-year-old, I was like, I don't want to hear that. Like, let's go fucking get these guys, you know? Yep. And that was the wrong mentality. I wish, yes. I wish, you know, uh, uh, someone had come, not that I was making decisions back then, but but you kind of wish a friend came and said, you better think really carefully about this. If you start a war, you don't know how it's going to end. You know, you, you you never know how a war is going to end. It always ends up having consequences you don't expect. And 
I do think as hard as it is for some people to hear this message, counseling some restraint, counseling taking some time here, counseling thinking this through, counseling being very careful to try to follow, uh, to follow the laws of war, um, um, that is not a lack of regard for what Israel has gone through. On the contrary, it's kind of what I wish someone had done for the United States after 9-11 because the decisions we made immediately, the Patriot Act and the way we went in Afghanistan, yep. and then a year later, we're still, you know, we're going Af- into Iraq. You know, we all know what that led to. And and, and so uh, I, I do just think uh, we, we can hold two thoughts in our head at the same time. We can be horrified by what happened, but, you know, really urging that, that this is thought through. And, and look, the die may be cast here by the time this podcast no, even airs, but that's why we're raising this. Yeah, listen, I, I feel like we are watching... Uh, a horror movie that we've all seen before. You know, horrific terrorist attack. People are devastated, angry, scared, all completely understandably. And people want revenge, again, understandably. But what I'm praying is that Israelis, you know, learn from the mistakes we made after 9-11. Don't repeat them. I mean, part one, as you said, part one is entering into a protracted, bloody war with no clear goal or endgame. But also, you know, the broader 9-11 policy response, yeah. the endless wars, the civil liberties violations, the list goes on and on. And the, the one thing that is making me hopeful, Ben, is, you know, in the wake of 9-11, Susan Sontag wrote that piece in The New Yorker. Which I remember basically, that, yeah. like, driven out of the country, yeah. right? The brutal honesty and criticism you're seeing of the Netanyahu government, the intelligence failure in places like Haaretz, uh, makes me hopeful that, like, courageous, sane voices refuse to not be heard and can have some influence. I don't think it's going to come from the United States, but I do think internal Israeli voices are speaking up in ways that I I wish more Americans um, had felt they could in the wake of 9-11. Yeah, and in part because these issues have been debated for some time, right? The treatment of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and the absence of any political aspiration. The the, the only thing I can think about and from a hopeful note is if you could get to a place with whatever military... operation takes place, um, you would hope that on the back end of that, you know, there will be a different Palestinian leadership, I think. That's for sure. Like 87-year-old Mahmoud Abbas and and Hamas is going to be sidelined. Bibi Netanyahu, it seems like it's not clear to me how long he's going to be prime minister. Yeah, we're getting some Um, polling on that after, yeah. Um, And so maybe, maybe, like, there can be some window that kind of opens up. you know, sometimes after wars is when you make peace. Um, I'm not, opt- I'm being honest, I'm not optimistic about that. No, no, no. Um, uh, given where this is headed and given, you know, the political direction of both the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, but uh, uh, this cycle of violence, um, it, 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 it just creates more violence. It begets more violence and more trauma. And um, you, you, something needs to arrest it at some point. Yeah. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. 
The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crookedworld. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. President Biden did do a press conference earlier today where he mentioned uh, the need to protect civilians. Let's, uh, let's play a clip. At my direction, our teams are working in the region, including communicating directly with the governments of Israel, Egypt, Jordan, and other Arab nations and the United Nations to surge support and humanitarian consequences for Hamas attack to help Israel. You know, we, have to, we can't lose sight of the fact that the overwhelming majority of Palestinians had nothing to do with Hamas and Hamas's appalling attacks, and they're suffering as a result as well. So good to hear Biden at least say that. So, you know, Ben, once again, this is a very heavy, uh, very emotional yeah. episode. So we're yes, going to give you all yeah. a quick reprieve yes. and do a segment about Republicans losing their fucking minds. Good, good, good. Let's good. start with Donald Trump. Here's a clip. And this is, let me tell you, this is a cut down from something that could be a lot longer. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. The press doesn't like when they say it. But Hezbollah, they're very smart. I'll never forget that Bibi Netanyahu <laughs> let us down. That was a very terrible thing. I will say that. They've got to straighten it out because they're fighting potentially a very big force. They're fighting potentially Iran. And when they have people saying the wrong things, everything they say is being digested by these people because they're vicious and they're smart 
So they got to strengthen themselves up. And they said, gee, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack from the north because that's the most vulnerable spot. I said, wait a minute. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. The press doesn't like when they say it. You know, I said that President Xi of China, 1.4 billion people, he controls it with an iron fist. I said, he's a very smart man. They killed me the next day. I said he was smart. What am I going to say? But Hezbollah, they're very smart. And they have a <coughs> national defense minister or somebody <coughs> saying, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack us from the north. So the following morning, they attacked. They might not have been doing it, but if you listen to this jerk, you would attack from the north because he said that's our weak spot. <laughs> I like when the people start to applaud him. Yeah, well, and they're like, what, what, Hezbollah's smart with the Yeah, no, I didn't even like the applause. I, I, it's I, amazing. Uh, it's so that, amazing. So Trump's saying Hezbollah is smart. He attacks Netanyahu. Oh. He calls the Israeli defense minister a jerk. Ben, do you think there's a chance that Hezbollah attacked from the north because they're based in Lebanon, which is north of Israel? <laughs> Could that be what happened here? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think it was genius. I think it was like a geography and physics um well he said smart like 20 times 100 like what, times what is what briefing did he read about hezbollah that um did, what classified documents did he take with him that uh i don't know. know and he's clearly just mad at netanyahu because he didn't go along with the election lie and because he congratulated biden when biden legitimately won the election <laughs> and it was called for him but he's just like he also truthed quote the attack on israel would never have happened to zero chance if the election of 2020 was not rigged and stolen so it the just, world's yeah. biggest narcissist it's rides all, again. It's all he can think about. It, it it does, you know, we are at this place where there's two wars now in Ukraine and this one that, you know, could be a more regional war in the Middle East. And that guy being in charge during, like, that kind of global instability is, is a truly terrifying uh, thought. Truly. Yeah. Uh, Lindsey Graham weighed in. Let's hear oh, a clip of oh, that. We're in a religious yeah. war here. I am with Israel. Do whatever the hell you have to do to defend yourself. Level the place. You know who wants a religious war? Hamas. Hamas Hezbollah. Yeah. yeah uh, George Bush weighed in, did his swaggering Texas bullshit. Florida Congressman Brian Mast wore an IDF uniform to a Republican <laughs> caucus meeting. Uh, Nikki Haley, the like supposedly sane one, is out there saying, uh, don't tell Israel to stop. Don't call for restraint. I mean, it is really scary over there on the conservative side. L Lindsey Graham just always seems so gleeful in these kinds so of situations. Yeah, he can't wait war. to go on television and talk about a war and leveling places and killing people. And and by the way, saying this is religious war is like the, the most counterproductive fucking thing you would possibly say, yep, right? The because, al on Earth. Yeah, it's, it's... I mean, I thought we learned... Talk about a 9-11 lesson. I thought, you know, even George Bush said it was wrong to say it was a crusade, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so let's, I mean, these people are so fundamentally unserious, you know? I mean, it, it's it, it's bonkers. You Dangerously know? stupid. And George Bush basically used the 9-11 language. He's like, eh, with them or against them. And oh, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, it's all black, black and white. And white. It was just, uh, talk about it. I thought he'd learn through all this painting therapy that he's doing, but I guess not. Yeah, just go paint yeah. anything. Like, just turn off just the news, Go George. paint a picture of BB and- Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, around the world, then, there have been huge protests, most of them pro-Palestine. Uh, in the Arab world, you know, you're seeing protests in Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen, Jordan, many other places. In France, uh, they banned pro-Palestinian protests after the former leader of Hamas called for protests. Uh, in the UK, the right-wing nutjob Home Secretary Suella Braverman warned demonstrators against waving the Palestinian flag. There's also been rallies in Australia and a bunch of uh, cities in the US, et cetera. So I don't know. I, I hope everyone listening is um, offended by the idea of banning speech or banning protests that is dumb and ineffective. That said, uh, just 
quick flag for everyone out there planning a protest. If your protest advertisement includes a photo of the Hamas guy on a hang glider, I think yeah. as the uh, University of Washington College uh, pro-Palestine rally did, uh, you're an asshole. Um, uh, if your speakers condone violence, you are in fact an asshole. You are setting back the cause of Palestinian rights. So this is how this works. Your right to free speech is absolute. You have the right to assembly. We have the right to tell you you're a dumb asshole. Yeah, like what the fuck is that about? You know, the, the, the whole hang glider thing. I mean, I but don't ban protests. No, don't no, be violent. Yeah, yeah. But absolutely, if you if you want to talk about Palestinian statehood or support for people in Gaza or support for the Palestinian people generally, of course that is good. That is fine. That that is that. Look, and, and there's also this you know movement to kind of cast this as some completely new woke phenomenon. That, that that's not the case. Like in the '60s and '70s and eight, always there's always been student uh, movements that are sympathetic to the yeah, Palestinians. There, I, been I mean, when I was in college. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it, this is not some new thing that happened just because of social media. But what social media does is it allows you to take the biggest dumb fuckery out there, yep. like the the hang glider, and say that that's everybody who's protesting. Right. And, and that's just not that's not the case. And look, we should be. We should be willing and open and able to have, for some reason, this issue is like the the hardest to discuss, you know, know. Um, openly. But that actually, I think it it feeds the, the hardening on both sides. Because if, if there's not a space to have conversation and protest and debate, well, then, you know, people go into their corners and they believe that the other side is the worst version of themselves. So if you uh, are not at all supportive of the Palestinians, you believe that everybody that's sympathetic to the Palestinians is got like a hang glider, you know, thing. And if you're someone who is sympathetic to the protesters, you think that that everybody who is sympathetic to Israel is like the worst version of a, the clip you heard from some far-right person saying they want to eradicate Palestinians. And that's actually not the reality. Most people are somewhere in a spectrum here. But the only way we can experience that is if there is a place for for speech and protest and debate and dialogue. And it's always going to be the case that, that a lot of young people are, are, are sympathetic to who they see as the underdogs. I mean, that's just as old as time. Um, and let, let's just hope that none of this you know, that the violence is obviously, uh, that that doesn't enter into it. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, it's interesting. Before this most recent conflict, there was this debate about whether kind of the Arab street is sort of how the shorthand, whether, um, you know, people had lost interest in the Palestinian cause. I think these protests are showing that there is still a lot of energy behind these movements. I think it's maybe an open question about how much of that energy is, you know, pro-Palestinian statehood versus just anti-Israel, right? You probably have a mix of both. Um, I also saw, Ben, that Vladimir Putin weighed in and he said that civilian casualties in Gaza would be unacceptable. So just, you know, want to keep you updated on the most cynical man on the planet's uh, musings. Yeah, but there, that, the point is, though, that argument, th- this is going to be turbocharged by Russian social media. You know, mm-hmm. we, the, the argument is going to be that the U.S. is a total hypocrite because, you know, we raise these concerns about war crimes in Ukraine and not in Gaza. Um, so this is going to be part, this is the backdrop. Th- this conflict is always got a global dimension. Um, you, you, uh, you're the one who flagged for me too, the, uh, the wisdom of Henry Kissinger coming into this, oh which is God. essentially like saying that, that this proves that Germany shouldn't have let in any, any, I guess, refugees immigrants, or yeah. immigrants because they, they're supportive of Palestinians like that. Thanks for weighing in. Uh, Henry Hank. Kissinger. Yeah. Yeah. It, once again, just a reminder to everyone that Joe Biden is, uh, the only president in modern history not to invite Henry Kissinger to the white house. Yeah. That's just, a, that's a, Definitely a notch. Another reason to vote for the guy. Uh, Ben, so, you know, people in Israel are still trying to figure out how this 
Hamas attack happened and how the intelligence community there didn't catch it. Uh, Haaretz uh, reported today that the three IDF observation balloons that had been used to monitor the Gaza border broke down in recent weeks and hadn't been repaired or replaced at the time of the attack. The Israeli government is examining whether Hamas kind of took them out in preparation for this assault. We're also seeing more and more clips about how Hamas used uh, small, cheap drones in these attacks. They dropped, you know, munitions on tanks. They dropped them on observation towers. They dropped them on a mechanical machine gun that apparently was used to sort of like fire at the border and took that out as well. These videos, I think, are probably familiar to anyone who spends time on Twitter and sees, you know, similar uh, clips of like Ukrainian military using yeah. kind of ad hoc military hardware like that. Um, we mentioned, you mentioned this earlier, Ben. So the Jerusalem Post commissioned a poll about the attack. It found that 85% of respondents said that the Hamas attack was a failure of the country's leadership. 56% said Netanyahu must resign at the end of the war. So, you know, we've been debating whether there would be a rally around the flag effect or whether people would blame BB, certainly post 9-11, we saw like the ultimate rally around the flag effect. Bush was at like, what, 91% approval yeah. or something like that. But uh, here it certainly seems that in the short term, despite the fact that there's this unity government um, and probably near unanimous support for responding to Hamas militarily, uh, still over half the country wants BB to go. That's That's hopeful. Yeah, and it, again, it just shows you that that is, Israelis, uh, are, you know, in some ways have a more robust, like, you know, debate. It, what they're doing, too, is they're holding two things in their head at the same time. Because what's interesting is they, they are rallying around the flag and they're blaming Bibi, you know, like, yeah. um, and, and that it's a complicated situation. Like, there's, there, context does matter, even though Hamas is entirely responsible. Like, Bibi did let down his guard and move resources up to the West Bank. Uh, you know, even again, as Hamas is responsible, like there's there's a place to be able to digest that. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens in the coming days um, as the military operation unfolds um, and, and how durable that that support is for for BB. Whether it, it maybe it goes up, maybe it goes back down. So it bears watching. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com slash store to shop Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. 
He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Okay, so we'll take some questions from the Discord chat here. Uh, again, crooked.com slash friends if you want to join and, and submit questions or just participate in the conversation. So uh, a listener asks, how much is there a connection between what has happened and the reporting of Trump leaking Israeli intelligence operatives, or is it like everything else too early to tell? I'm seeing a lot of this on Twitter. Um, I think this is referring to an incident in 2017 when Trump reportedly told a bunch of Russian officials, I think it was Sergey Lavrov and the ambassador at the time, uh, about a what we have since learned was a covert Israeli mission to penetrate ISIS, uh, an ISIS cell in Syria that was developing bombs that we thought could evade airport security. I think there's probably zero connection between what just happened with Hamas in Israel and that incident, uh, as much as people, you know, the resistance wants to blame yeah. Trump, and I get it, yeah. but I don't know. What, what's your take? Yeah, I don't. I mean, that was in, you know, 2017, um, and so the the possibility that some intelligence source that was compromised by that disclosure by Trump it was relevant to an event in 2023 is pretty pretty minuscule to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another listener asked a bunch of questions about Hezbollah, kind of like, what's Hezbollah? What do you think they're going to go to war? Um, and there was a report in the Post that was relevant to this. So um, they, the Washington Post, folks remember, they got the so-called Discord leaks. That was when this airman in Massachusetts leaked all this highly classified Pentagon stuff to uh, a Discord server that he was hanging out with on his, with his friends. This one, uh, this report about Hezbollah from February is a top secret U.S. intelligence document. They assessed that a massive attack by Hezbollah was unlikely. Um, that was obviously before this Hamas incident. Um, and that historically speaking, though, Hezbollah and Israel have tended to clash in more limited proportionate ways so says this assessment. Um, just a quick 101 on Hezbollah. So it means party of God in Arabic. They are a Lebanon-based Shiite militant group and political party. Hezbollah emerged out of Lebanon civil war in the 1970s, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1978 and 1982, uh, when the Israelis were going after the Palestine uh, Liberation Organization, or PLO. So Iran pro provides Hezbollah with a ton of money and weapons and training, and they have since their inception. Hezbollah is responsible for the bombing of the U.S. and French military barracks in Beirut in 1983. They killed more than 300 people. Um, like Hamas, uh, Hezbollah is committed to the destruction of Israel, but they also have a larger, sort of more sprawling set of ambitions and operations. They operate in Iraq and Syria and Yemen. They've done stuff in Africa, Asia. Uh, they've attempted things in the U.S. The State Department says Iran provides Hezbollah with about $700 million per year. So that's about 10x, I think, what they provide Hamas, mm -hmm. according to the State Department. Uh, but they also make money off of both legal and criminal enterprises. So yeah. they're kind of this weird hybrid thing. Yeah. Uh, and Hezbollah's had a cabinet-level position in the Lebanese government since 2005. So, Ben, any further thoughts on sort of like what what the deal with Hezbollah is and, you know, your thoughts today about the possibility that they might get involved. Yeah, I, I mean, the few points I'd make just to add to that very good summary. I mean, first of all, they are a much kind of bigger, and, and I don't want to echo Trump with this, they're so smart. You but, think they're geniuses. No, they're, they're sophisticated, let's yeah. say. They, they, they're a bigger organization politically. They are deeply integrated into the government of Lebanon, Literally, which is yeah. a dysfunctional government. But to give people a flavor of that, 
I remember when we were in government and we would do bilateral meetings with the Lebanese prime minister, we'd have to have like a very short meeting. You know, you have the meeting where there's like, you know, eight people at a table on each side and, you know, the, the two heads of state or heads of government are sitting in chairs and, and you'd meet for a very brief time and then you'd skinny that meeting down to like uh, the president and prime minister with like one or two people because there's some fucking Hezbollah guys like literally like rolling with the prime minister. You know, yeah. like they, they are, they're part of the government of Lebanon. Um, so they have this kind of political standing in Lebanon. At the same time, they're much bigger than Hamas on their military side. They have a much bigger and more sophisticated rocket stockpile. And then in terms of military tactics, like what I would underscore is they fought in Syria for like a decade. So these people, and, and by the way, the Israelis are often bombing um, Hezbollah targets in Syria. Yes. Because if they frequently. saw, yeah, if they saw Hezbollah getting transfers of weapons in from the Iranians or whomever, they would hit them. But the point is that these these people have serious experience more than Hamas um, in recent wars, including in Syria. So that this is like an army getting involved. I mean, they are terrorists too, and they commit terrorist attacks. They've blown up buses with Israeli tourists in, in, in parts of the world. But, you know, that's why people warn of this escalation because they're, they're actually a bigger and, and more well-equipped and experienced uh, version of Hamas, um, closer to Iran, too, because they're Shia and more ideologically yep. aligned with Iran. So they're seen as much more like almost an extension of Iranian interests. They have obviously their own independent uh, uh, issues and standing in Lebanon, but, but Hamas is Sunni Muslim uh, versus Hezbollah being a Shia organization. So them getting involved would be a game changer in a bad way. And the question is, if they see, you know, if the humanitarian, if things get really ugly in Gaza, or, or do they feel themselves somehow compelled to get involved? And then that's, you know, then then we're back to, you know, a, a two-front war and, and maybe a war that further devastates Lebanon and Beirut, which is already a mess. So, you know, it's not good. Like, like the that's what you don't want to happen. Yeah, Lebanon's basically yeah. a failed state at the moment. Yeah. yeah, I think I saw a State Department report from 2019 that said they estimated Hezbollah as like tens of thousands of members globally. And also, you know, the other, the stat you always see is 150,000 rockets Hezbollah pointed at Israel. So yeah, it'd be a big, big deal. Uh, last question, Ben. So, um, so the U.S. in Qatar decided to block Iran's access to the $6 billion in oil revenue that we've been talking about that was transferred from South Korea to Qatar as part of that hostage swap. Um, is this, this uh, Discord user asks, is that denial of funds a causeless belly for Iran to go nuts? Um, I don't know. I mean, domestic politically, this seemed like the only path forward, right? Like, yeah. they're not saying Iran will never get this money. They're saying it's indefinitely paused. Um, I don't know. Again, we don't we don't make deals with the Iranians because we like them. We do it because it's in our interests. And in this case, it was to get hostages home. I do wonder what you think, though. It's like the U.S. cuts a deal with Iran to put in place the JCPOA. We pull out of it. We do this hostage swap. Yeah. We yeah. refuse them the funds. Yeah. At some point, you're going to foreclose diplomacy with the Iranians. I'm not saying that's my like foremost concern at the moment, but long term, it is something that is just worth thinking about. Yeah. Look, I, I, the, the Iranians like do plenty of bad shit. Um, I, I'm going to raise an issue that you know every, this six billion dollar thing keeps getting raised because it's like the only Republican attack on Biden that they can make, and it, we've talked about why it's a bullshit attack. I don't believe, and and. Iran has more. Th Iran has hundreds of billions of dollars. It's a nation state with a lot of oil. So yeah. it's not like they're sitting there with no money and then they're just waiting for a check to come through from like a host you know from th this kind of deal. So this is kind of a 
and we've already talked about the amounts that to Hamas and Hezbollah are, are like are a fraction of the Iranian overall budget. You know, mm-hmm. like they, they they can find that money without this this deal. Um, so I understand why politically we're not doing it. The one thing I'm going to say, because nobody makes arguments on the other side of these things, is, you know what? Maybe pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement, and um, <laughs> and and re-escalating tensions in that region was not a good idea. Empowering the most hardline yeah, factions exactly. in the like, country. It, yeah, like uh, you humiliating the government that did the Iran nuclear deal, uh, pushing Iranian politics in a hardline direction. Um, I, I could list a whole bunch of other things. We've already talked about the Abraham Accords, obviously. Like, um, I'm not doing a cause, causal analysis. I'm just saying that, like, if you turn these things into constant zero-sum, uh, like, hardline uh, approaches, that's kind of what the, that's the Middle East you're going to get, you know? Um, there, some place there has to be some space for diplomacy. There just does. Otherwise, these the wars are going to go on forever. Now, I get in the near term, just cut off all funding for Iran, squeeze, 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 that makes total sense to me, but it's not going to like solve this problem. It's not no. going to like prevent Iran from having any resourcing to provide Hamas. And it is it is it is wrong to tell people that. It's wrong to make people think that if we turn off the six billion dollars, that somehow Hamas will never get any money from Iran again. That's right. just not true. No, no, they're they're, they're yeah, they're not overly concerned about. Uh, the uh, humanitarian supplies that they were able to purchase with that $6 yeah. billion if it were not turned off. Um, we're almost at an hour. Anything else you want to talk about before we before we wrap here? The only thing I'm going to say on the Iran point is that, uh, we just should note, because it came after the last international response roundup we did, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, did a phone call with the president of Iran, which he'd never done Very before. Very weird. Not done before. And then the readout of the call was expressing concern about like Israeli war crimes and and so it is just a signal MBS is a weather vane you know for where the Gulf Arabs are going like you know that I think is a sign of of these leaders being worried um almost preemptively about public opinion you know so it, it shows how much those normalization deals are kind of on on ice right now yeah I would not uh I would not suspect that MBS is going to jump into those talks, at least publicly, anytime soon, uh, the normalization talks. I did see one tweet, just to mention, uh, uh, someone tweeted, uh, Jackie Heinrich, that the U.S. has urged Israel to delay its ground operation in Gaza until safe passage for Palestinians can be secured. So that would be good. Um, but hopefully they actually follow through with it. Yeah. Um, okay, that's it for us from today. Uh, we're obviously going to cover this next week, and uh, we appreciate you all listening. And thank you especially to uh, Noor Hazin uh, for sending us that incredibly powerful audio clip, and also thank you to Mahmoud Shalabi for uh, for reaching out, talking to us about his experience, and also for all the work he's doing to provide people uh, with support on the ground. And, uh, you know, send us any questions you have. Yeah. It helps produce my, the show. And my only last note would be to echo Greg Carlstrom's point, like, none of us know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. We're giving you our best sense of things, uh, but uh, we're just trying to figure this out, and we're glad that you all are listening to us as, as we all do that together. Yeah, absolutely. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Reed Cherlin. Our producer is Alona Minkowski, and associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our studio technician is David Tolls. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. the world.